I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in the series, Practicing the Way, Simplicity. The New Testament speaks at length about the corrupting power of money and possessions. These writings grate against our modern world of excess, against the constant propaganda of more. Now, how do we, as disciples of Jesus, take practical steps in embracing Jesus' bold claim that giving things away is better than keeping them for ourselves? Cyprian, who was a, a North African church father, wrote about rich Christians all the way back in the third century. And what he had to say does not sound good. This is what he wrote. Their property held them in chains, chains which shackled their courage and choked their faith and hampered their judgment and throttled their souls. If they stored up their treasure in heaven, they would not now have an enemy and a thief within their household. They think of themselves as owners, whereas it is they rather who are owned enslaved as they are to their own property. They are not the masters of their money, but its slaves. Cyprian's sentiment is as unpopular today as I assume it was several centuries prior. Then and now, the overwhelming sentiment bombarding the senses from all sides is more. More is the American way, a disposable income, disposable kitchenware and cutlery, extend your wardrobe, order Grubhub, live out your youth check to check, weekends bloated with frivolities, hashtag do what makes you happy. Or maybe you're the responsible type, which is in America still about more, more comfort, more security, a padded bank account, Dave Ramsey plans to clear debt and build savings, a five-year career trajectory, more money, more stuff. But in America, it's also about more experience. Take a tour of social media and see what you're missing. Elsewhere, someone is out there on a boat. Look how happy they are. What did you do this weekend while this person was on a boat? Somewhere, someone is just rowing along in their kayak practical fedora, enjoying activities that were not at all planned and accomplished for the sake of this totally candid photograph. Someone is enjoying coffee in a not at all staged and 100% candid real life living room moment. They're out there with their families making incredible moments together and they just happen to snap this great photograph and you're missing it. The moments, the vacations, the fedoras and bathroom tiles and interior design. More is the new more. (laughs) My wife Abby told me about an expression she noticed catching steam amongst young wealthy people in the digital world where they would write underneath their photographs on social media, money can't buy happiness, but poverty can't buy anything. And then they Post this beneath photos of private jets or seven-figure checks from their multi-level marketing income or from their resorts in the Bahamas. The American creed, be comfortable, have fun, spend, buy a house, make it nicer, fill it with things, go places, eat little donuts, take pictures of them. And I think of this writing all the way back from the third century, their property held them in chains, change Chains which shackled their courage and choked their faith and hampered their judgment and throttled their souls. 
Not much has changed in several centuries. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. For several weeks we have been in a series and set of practices designed to teach us the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity. Obviously we took a short break to celebrate Easter. That's a big deal for us. But now we're here to finish out the rest of the series. Early on, we defined the the spiritual discipline of simplicity this way. Simplicity is limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. In his book on the subject, Richard Foster said this about the spiritual discipline of simplicity. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better, Indeed, we often accept this notion without question with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. Furthermore, the pace of the modern world accentuates our sense of being fractured and fragmented. We feel strained, hurried, breathless. The complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more threatens frequently to overwhelm us. It seems there is no escape from the rat race. Christian simplicity frees us from this modern mania. It brings sanity to our compulsive extravagance and peace to our frantic spirit. It liberates us. It allows us to see material things for what they are, goods to enhance life, not to oppress life. There are similar ideas in the world of philosophy and world religion, but the spiritual discipline of simplicity is taken from the life and teachings of Jesus and from the writings of the New Testament, not from Stoicism, not in the pursuit of Zen, not in homage to Tyler Durden, and not in the name of the self-help minimalism fad. So with that in mind, let's read from 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is from an apprentice of Jesus called Paul, writing to his young protege, Timothy. Now, in chapter 6, the Bible introduces a section of the letter with a header that reads, False Teachers and the Love of Money, which sounds awesome. So let's begin with there, right there, in the second half of verse 2. Paul writes, These are the things that you are to teach and insist on. Now, this, in context is Paul's setup for the concept of social justice. Now, long before hashtags and armchair activism and Western outrage politics and government programs, the Church of Jesus was for a long time the resource for the redistribution of wealth from the well-off to those in need in the first century. So when Paul writes, these are the things, he's talking about the way the church actively demonstrated justice for the poor and the vulnerable and for the oppressed. Keep reading. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus the King and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap 
and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, in this last little section that I read, in just four short verses, Paul makes six stark statements about money and possessions. First, if you're taking notes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now that sounds like basic bible wisdom, or honestly, it kind of sounds like bad Christian bookstore wall art. But this is actually a subversive rebuke of the tendency to exploit the way of Jesus in the name of financial gain. This sinister, pseudo-godly money hunger that Paul is beating up on in the first century hasn't gone anywhere. It's alive and well in the prosperity gospel theology, which is basically you scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours. Do for God so that he can do for you. If you want more money, then you need to give to the church and God will give you more. If you want a better life, then behave better for God and he just might steer your fragile little existence around the next tragedy on the road of life. And if not, you're on your own, man. Maybe you sinned or maybe you didn't give enough. That's on you. Paul defies this logic by teaching that what you get for your obedience to the way of Jesus is contentment. What you get for your obedience to Jesus is your obedience to Jesus. This is what we call spiritual formation, becoming the type of person set free into a deep sense of peace and gratitude in the simplicity of an ordinary life. Next, Paul says, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. This is the original, you can't take it with you. You, all of you, are going to die and your wardrobe, your passport stamps, your house, your fancy mug collection, your record collection, all the stuff that you've accumulated will cease to be yours. You were born empty-handed and you will die the same way. There are things that translate from this life to what the New Testament calls the age to come, but they are the kinds of things refined in practicing the way of Jesus, which tends to clear away material possessions and excess busyness rather than bring more. Which is why, next, Paul makes this point. If we have food and clothes, we'll be fine with that. This is actually hilarious because the Greek word that Paul uses for clothing literally means a covering. So it's akin to saying something more like food and shelter. Or if we have the very base necessities for human survival, that's plenty. This ethos is so far removed from our world that it probably makes most people in this room fidget uncomfortably, myself included. If we have food and shelter, that's enough. I don't think of myself as a hedonist or like a rampant materialist or anything, but I'll admit I usually do not live as if I agree with Paul here. I often feel as if I need much more than food and shelter for contentment. And not only that, You and I live in the Pacific Northwest, in the greater Portland metropolitan area. Food and shelter, that's it. In the world that we know, it's more like if we have hundreds of rotating options for food and coffee and beer and novelty entertainment accompanied by homogenized Instagram comrade-approved fashion and interior design, we will be momentarily contented with that until we are not and then we will need more. 
Again, Paul's take on money and possessions is radical, and he's not done. Fourth, he claims that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap, and a trap, and into many harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And here's the thing. We, as Americans, love to let ourselves off the hook with this one. We hear those who want to get rich, and we immediately excuse ourselves from Paul's warnings. We say, oh, man, this is for Jeff Bezos or Scrooge McDuck or something. But I venture a guess that most, if not all of us, would like to live comfortably according to an American standard of living, which is filthy rich by a global standard. We want American incomes, we want raises, and we want stuff. And then thinking of CEOs and movie stars and famous athletes as the only rich people, that's, that's like thinking of Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking as the only smart people in the world. They represent those who are famously intelligent, but there are many, many very intelligent people in the world with lower IQs or who weren't, you know, theoretical physicists or whatever. Bill Gates being rich doesn't make you and me any less rich. Most of us want an American standard of comfort, and that standard requires what, for most of the entire world, is known as wealth. Meaning, when Paul talks about those who want to get rich, he's probably talking about you and me, and Scrooge McDuck. We don't, we don't want to read it that way, but there it is, and it gets worse. Fifth, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's actually a pretty famous Bible quote, or should I say misquote. In pop culture, it's usually money is the root of all evil, which is simpler, I'll give it that, ergo better, as the popular thinking goes. It's why we have pop music. More people understand simple, so you dumb it down, more listeners, more money. And as a general rule, I don't care for uh, pop music. There are exceptions to every rule, of course. See Hootie and the Blowfish. Tab... <laughs> Are you working on those covers yet? Okay, great. He's on his way. In general, doesn't get much more uh, popular than Hootie and the Blowfish. Triple diamond album sales. Did I tell you guys about that? Man, it's going to come up a lot, I can tell, in the next few months. In general, the, uh, the top 40 stuff is not my thing personally. So I follow a few music publications, though, and I occasionally see headlines about pop performers that crack me up, and I always click on stories about pop, performer, pop performers getting struck with the, you know, the nonsense club of cancel culture, so I, I love it so much. Pray for me. Obviously, there's a lapse in my spiritual formation. I'm working on it, but to be honest, right now, I love it. I'm working on it. Pop performers encountering cancel culture for everything from things like hairstyles or reading a book is kind of like a plot from The Simpsons. It's amazing. A week or two ago, there was one about Justin Bieber. He got semi-Justin Bieber. He got semi-canceled because he included a, a sample of Dr. Martin Luther King on his current record, and, and then he had to issue a formal statement. Uh, it's so good. You can't make this stuff up. It's so good. But even with my personal aversion to the top 40 stuff, I listen to a lot of new music, and, and every week I spend at least a little time reading about and trying out new artists. And I have this personal rule um, about finding things. If the first impression is good, I'll go looking for a music video, and if the music video has views that number as high as or higher than 100,000, it's too popular, and I pass. Tens of thousands I can manage. Uh, and I know that uh, some, or maybe all of you are hating me for this, how pretentious it all sounds. I know it does. I'm going somewhere, I think. I don't like the top 40 stuff, personally, usually because 
it's dumbed down for a wider audience and bigger profits and popular culture tends to do the same kinds of things with the Bible. You're not dumb if you like it. Remember, I like Hootie and the Blowfish. But it's simplified for the masses. Simple is easier to understand. It's why the Christian bookstore industry managed to profit off of wooden placards that say things like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In context, Paul was talking about surviving with no money and no resources. But it's simpler if he just means whatever, winning a basketball game or getting the big raise. So you put that wooden placard over the mantle of a multi-million dollar suburban home. Or you stroll through the automatic doors of a Hobby Lobby and you might see a framed portrait of an American soldier with a quote from Jesus. There is no greater love than this to lay down one's life for their friends. Despite the fact that Jesus was referring to deliberately rejecting military violence in favor of nonviolence and dying for your enemies rather than killing them. Thus, we arrive at the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil rather than money is the root of all evil. Money itself is not the root of all evil because without the value that we assign it, it's basically meaningless. And we have within us the power to take value away from money. We enable unthinkable evil, evil compelled by the love of money, in the way that we shop or eat or live or play. Nike doesn't have to exploit children and promote slave labor to make shoes, but they make more money if they do, and we enable them by giving money to them. Or factory farms don't have to torture living things and condemn millions of animals to lives of hellish nightmare suffering, but they can sell more meat and milk if they do, and we enable them by buying it. We don't need the fast fashion hoodie or the factory farm milk, but we want it, and we don't really feel like inconveniencing ourselves, and those compelled by the lack or the love of money exploit what they know to be our lack of empathy and concern, and they do so in the name of the love of money, the root of all kinds of complex, sinister, evil, and suffering and destruction across the globe. And thus, Paul's final point, some of the people who were eager for money wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now notice, so far, there's no command. These are just facts about the nature of money and possessions and their destructive power over the world and over apprentices of Jesus. These are just statements about the way things are. This is reality. And then, Paul goes on in verse 11, but you. So Paul isn't starting an entirely new stream of thought here. What follows is flowing from everything that he's just written. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Messiah Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be the honor and might forever. Amen. Now, all this classic Paul stuff, like fight the good fight and take hold of eternal life, it's all about, in context, rejecting the intoxicating siren song of money and possessions. And then he goes on in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, remember, that's us. 
Jeff Bezos and Scrooge McDuck as well. But if you live on more than a couple of dollars a day, you are likely in the top percent of the world's wealth. So this is for us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So finally, the statements about reality become commandments for disciples of Jesus. Now again, if you're taking notes, there are six such commandments. And the first is simple, do not be arrogant. And we think, sure, arrogance is bad. Check, don't be arrogant. But Paul specifically is talking about an arrogant sense of autonomy. The idea that we can plan our future, secure our own comfort via hard work, and all that. A few days ago, a uh, famous author faced her own cancel mob when she bragged about having a housekeeper or something and thus was accused of being wealthy and unrelatable. So she defended herself, this is all on social media, in the name of hard work. Yeah, I'm unrelatable because I worked hard for all this wealth and success and, and my housekeeper. And then she probably went too far by comparing herself to Harriet Tubman, so that was it for her. I think we have an actual photo of the comments section. Uh, what unfolded after that? It looked like this. Get it? It's sharks. It's a feeding frenzy. Yeah, it was, it was something. And it's easy to poke fun because, again, it's like something from The Simpsons. But really, that is the American spirit, the whole idea of the self-made man or woman. Hard work and planning and discipline, and you too can have wealth and success and a housekeeper. Arrogance and entitlement is the opposite of a spirit of gratitude, a spirit that understands that all of our money and assets are fleeting and that they'll turn to dust and that we're alive at all is a gift from God. So Paul commands, do not put your hope in wealth. Another very difficult pill for us to swallow because we do most, if not all, of our planning around money and career and finances and income. We plan safety and security around wealth, and though we rarely admit it, we forecast happiness based on money and stuff. But the more we get, the more we want, and even if we get more, it all amounts to nothing in the end. So Paul doesn't want us miserable and utterly ascetic, which is why he commands us to deeply enjoy things as a gift from God, which is amazing in all of this radical, hardcore-sounding teaching. He suddenly says, enjoy, but do so realizing how small you are and how ephemeral all of this really is. For a couple of years now, I'd been um, counting the days to the release of Godzilla vs. Kong for myself and for my children. And I was really looking forward to taking them to see it. I went to see it myself first for a couple of reasons. One's to make sure that they can handle it. My parents used to do that. They'd be like, oh, this is PG-13. We'll go see it first and let you know if you're going to be able to go see it. Most of the time, they'd come back and my mom would be like, oh, I don't know. My dad would be like, yeah, you'll be fine. But then one time they, <laughs> they came back. I remember specifically from Batman Returns, the um, Tim Burton film. And they were both shaking their heads like, no, nah, that's too much. We were heartbroken, utterly heartbroken. Ruined everything. And then a few months later, it came out on VHS, and somehow it, everyone forgot, and we just watched it anyway. Well, anyway, I went to see it first to clear it for my kids, 
and also because I needed to enjoy it first without anyone distracting me. So I saw it, and then a couple of days later, Abby and I took the kids to see it, and then I went for a third time myself last night. <laughs> but when the kids finally came to see the movie, Isla brought Godzilla with her and held, held on to him as we were watching. I should mention that Abby took this photo. Um, I do not, under any circumstances, have my phone out at the movies. We are all in different phases of our spiritual formation, so you can pray for her. Anyway, I've been watching these movies, Godzilla movies, since I was about five or six years old. I did the math to write this teaching. And my kids have now, they've been watching them since they were about three. So they got the jump on me. And though it likely sounds ridiculous to someone, which is totally fine, this is a very precious experience for me, taking my kids to the movies. I mean, it's something that my dad did for us as kids. And if you have kids, then you know it's a wonderful thing when you get to share a, a common enthusiasm for something with your kids. The first time I took my son to the movies, I remember I cried quietly as we left just thinking about it. So I often experience these outings in the conscious presence of God, grateful for every second. But I'm well aware that at the end of the day, what we're doing is spending money to take our kids to a loud monster movie. That I can do that at all is a gift, let alone draw sincere joy from such a thing. I didn't make the movie. I didn't build the theater. I have so little influence or control. They kept moving around the release date, which was a real challenge for me. I'm at the mercy of everything else, and I'm just there as a grateful moviegoer, glad it exists and that I get to go with my family. If I can bring that same sense of gratitude and self-awareness to my own finances and to my income and to my stuff, then I would be free to enjoy myself without fear or anxiety, without fretful planning around things beyond my control. And I would be more likely to follow Paul's next command. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Notice the clever play on words. We are to be more concerned with goodness as Jesus defines it than with our money and possessions. One lasts into the age to come and the other does not. So we are to be generous and willing to share and lay up treasures as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that, Paul writes, we may take hold of the life that is truly life. The way we access life is not by seeking the kingdom more than we seek wealth and possessions and experiences, but by seeking the kingdom rather than those things. In other words, don't seek wealth and possessions at all. For Paul, the way we access freedom and joy and deep soul satisfaction and contentment and gratitude and peace is through the ancient practice of simplicity. Now, you may feel itchy at the idea of simplicity and all Paul's hardcore defiance against the American dream, but who doesn't want soul satisfaction and contentment and gratitude and peace? Virtually all human beings crave these things at a deep spiritual level. And in the way of Jesus, we aren't simply zapped by a divine lightning bolt that architects our desire and we can't simply willpower our way against the overwhelming current of American consumerism upstream to simplicity. We don't change in an instant and we can't just will our way to change. Instead, throughout the centuries in the church and the ancient way of Jesus, the way that we change is through practice. That is what the spiritual disciplines are for, practice, 
training. How do we begin to practice simplicity in this sense? Simplicity of money and things and experiences. In the New Testament and throughout church history, there have been many answers, but most of them fall under three guiding principles. The first is to limit how much you own. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton was a Catholic philosopher and art critic who once suggested, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. But how do you desire less? The same way that you train yourself to desire less sugar or less alcohol or less television, you cut it out of your life. You get rid of excess and you begin to intentionally self-limit possessions and the excessive expenditure of both money and time. Limits, I realize, are an unpopular concept in the modern world. Recently, I got a letter from someone wanting to know our church's position on divisive topics like sexuality, looking for like a bottom line position, which frankly, I'm happy to offer. But really, I told them, these kinds of things come down to what we believe about Jesus in the story of the Bible. Do you believe Jesus asks his apprentices to deny themselves, even innate non-voluntary desires in the name of discipleship? If you think, no, Jesus would never ask anyone to deny themselves, then you'll have a, a hard time with the whole Bible thing. Because really, the Bible begins as a story about what happens when humanity violates limits imposed by God. And the culture of our world thrives on our inability to say no to more. That's why tech companies use psychological strategies to advertise to you in exactly the right way so that you'll spend more, buy more, and do more. So the world wants more, more individualism, autonomy, money, experience, stuff. But the disciple of Jesus has to find a way to live and be contented with less. Get rid of excess, limit your budget, limit the number of things in your home, limit your wardrobe, your record collection, and so on. Quaker Thomas Kelly called this a carefree unconcern for possessions. And in the same way that chasing after more increases more desire for more money, more stuff, more possessions, disciplining ourselves to get rid of stuff and set limits on what we own incredibly increases our contentment and satisfaction and freedom. Parents know this from experience. It's why kids with a million toys complain about boredom, but when they're in a situation with severe limits, they find ways to gratefully occupy themselves with one thing for hours. So, principle one, limit how much you own. And then secondly, limit how much you do. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that being active is bad. Being active is great. Maybe some of you need to hear, do more. Get out of bed, out from behind a TV, do things, take your kids somewhere, be active. But part of simplicity is understanding that there is a place for doing and there is a place for being still and doing nothing. Some of us need to hear, do more. But a lot of us, I would guess, need to ask ourselves an important question. Can you sit still without an experience without going anywhere or doing anything, without even leaving a room and be content and at peace. The spiritual director Jan Johnson wrote, our living spaces are often cluttered with too many objects and our vacations hurried with too many good things to do. Jesus, however, knew the deep goodness of limiting oneself. 
as life becomes more outwardly simple, it becomes more inwardly rich. I have known so many people who can't sit still. They can't stand the quiet. They need noise. They need activity. They need to get out of the house. If I was their pastor, I would tell them this. Take a little time every day and a longer period every week to sit still in a quiet, empty room with no distractions, no agenda, nothing but a notebook, and sit with God. This is the time equivalent of clearing out a wardrobe or a record collection, disciplining yourself to own less and do less, both with contentment and peace. Can you be someone who didn't do anything today, the way the world defines doing anything, someone who sat in the quiet or someone who stayed home and changed diapers and listened to little kids tell you stories, and that was enough? Limit how much you do. And finally, practice generosity. Owning less is only part of the journey. To truly practice simplicity, to actually want less, we have to learn the art of generosity. Limit what you own, sure, but stopping there, that's just the self-help minimalism fad. Give away what you have to give, money, resources, and time. Jesus taught that giving things away is better than keeping them. For ourselves. He told his disciples to, quote, sell your possessions and give to the poor in this passage that Kiana read a few minutes ago. That second one, sell your possessions and give to the poor, the tense of the verb is active, meaning that that wasn't just a one-shot command for one person, but it was a decree for how disciples of Jesus are to live in the ongoing sense. On a regular basis, sell your possessions and give to the poor. The only way that we will know if this guy was telling the truth is if we give it a shot. Generosity is not just some arbitrary drill designed by Jesus to test your faithfulness. It is a way of life that blesses. Generosity teaches us to trust God. It deepens our love for God and our sense of being loved by God. Generosity makes us grateful. It frees us to enjoy what we have without anxiety or greed. Generosity dethrones money and possessions and experiences in our hearts. And obviously, it blesses others who benefit from our generosity. It promotes justice and it reduces damage done to creation by our rampant materialism and consumption. Generosity powers the pragmatic function of the church. Without finances, like Cam said, there is no vanity. City. Your generosity, by the grace of God, keeps this thing happening. It's how the church has worked for centuries. We haven't come up with some new concept. This is how it's always been. And in all of this, we are being set free. If you're a disciple of Jesus, the best time to take up the practice of generosity is now. Always now. Well off or near broke good time in your life or bad time in your life, global recession or not, the time to practice generosity is always now. And there are lots of reasons for this. One is that contrary to what many assume, generosity is not something better learned in one season over another. Many people tend to assume, oh, I'll wait until I get organized or I'll wait until I make a little more or until A, B, and C happen and then I'll get started with generosity, but it just doesn't work that way. If you do not practice generosity in a consistent, disciplined way when you have little, you will not start doing it when you make more. Simplicity is, in a sense, like recovery. The best time for an addict to seek recovery is now. 
We tend to idolize those who are wealthy and do incredible things with their impressive bank accounts. But Jesus celebrated the poor whose giving was near inconsequential in the contributive sense, but it was radically self-sacrificial. So you don't have to be rich, well off, you don't need a steady paycheck. Anyone can be generous. It is a spiritual discipline. You take what you have, be it finances or abilities or time, and you give more away than you keep for yourself. Not when you feel like it, but in a consistent, disciplined, self-sacrificial way. I know that starting anything like this can seem overwhelming. So this week's practice is at vancity.church simplicity. And the idea is that we'll walk you through exercises based on the three ideas of limiting the things you own, limiting the amount of things you do, and practicing generosity. For many of you, this practice will take longer than a week. That's totally fine. The idea will be to move through each room of your house and begin sorting your possessions into categories. Give away, sell, recycle, or trash. Wait or keep. To preface this practice, and before we end, let me just offer a few pointers or encouragements for you guys. First, you can make it easy on yourself by starting on less demanding areas and items and then move on from there. You can make it easier for yourself by getting rid of duplicates. Contrary to popular belief, most people don't need dozens of mugs or several sets of linens or six blankets or multiple pairs of near-identical blue jeans or whatever. Those are easy things to part with. Remind yourself from the outside to avoid the trap of, but I might use this someday. Believe me, when Abby and I began this journey, that was a tempting escape hatch to avoid parting with stuff that we almost never use and barely remembered we owned. I did it all the time, particularly with books and movies. She's like, you read, it was like the Seinfeld bit. What do you need it for after you read it? I was like, all right, but I might want to read that again. She's like, get it from the library. But I did it, and then you, you realize, guess what? You get rid of it, and you go right back to never using it. Nothing really changes. If you find yourself reasoning, but I might use this someday, that's a great indicator that you can get rid of it. Then... The stuff that's sentimental and or super disorganized or complicated, save that for last so that you don't get bummed and lose steam. Now, as dumb as it sounds, if the process slows or becomes excessively challenging, just look at that book or mug or pair of shoes and ask yourself, do I need this? Do I regularly use this? Is it useful on a consistent basis? Is owning this thing consistent with my vision for life under the authority of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And then accompany this work of clearing out excess with generosity. Give. Organize your budget to give regularly and consistently to justice causes and to the church. Sponsor a kid or research a nonprofit or set up an automatic recurring payment. It's so easy, and most of the time you'd never even realize that it's going anywhere. Another great way to start small and train in self sacrificial giving is to comb through your budget and divert a single specific expense toward others rather than yourself. So if you look at your budget and you're like, man, I buy X amount of lattes every single month, or I'm still paying for a streaming service that I use once a month, cancel that app or go without the extra coffee and then take that 20 bucks or whatever it is that you just got back and divert that into generosity for someone else rather than you. Use it to bless someone that you know and love. But remember to prioritize specifically the poor, the oppressed, and the church. 
If you're already tithing, which is this biblical art of giving 10% of what comes in right away to the church and to justice, then you can graduate from tithing to what the New Testament calls generosity, which isn't 10%. It's just an unnumbered, radical amount. Give more. For most of us, giving 10%, if we're honest, is not really that self-sacrificial. Now, I realize that all of this sounds extreme. We're Americans. To call this an upstream discipline is an understatement. But think about it. We follow a teacher and master who told his disciples to, on a regular basis, sell your possessions, give to the poor, who told would-be disciples to get rid of all their wealth and possessions in in order to be able to follow him, who told everyone that giving things away is better than keeping them for yourself. And here we are, squinting at an extra pair of shoes or a fourth mug or all torn up inside, wondering if we can live without them. And as silly as it sounds, letting go of that mug or that book for me will teach us something that Jesus already knew. We can do it and we can become more free in the process. And we, when we lose that mug and survive, we'll be less afraid to get rid of that extra pair of jeans. And when that doesn't kill us either, we'll find ourselves less pulled into the gravity of advertising and shopping and the desire for more. Why go through all this trouble of getting rid of excess only to accumulate more? And maybe we'll find ourselves a bit less distracted, our hearts set free to give a bit more recklessly. And maybe we'll find ourselves more at peace and more free. And maybe we'll sit with Jesus, breathing deep, relaxed, unanxious about our homes or our bank accounts or our schedules, and we will finally look at him and admit, I guess you were right. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do this. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.